Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Shad. I'm a physician and a Harvard MBA and co-founder of a digital therapeutic startup called Sky Therapeutics. And my name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying an MBA, computer science PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And now I'm building Sky Therapeutics with Shad. Our guest today is Dr. Sievert Weiss co-founder at Amboss. Sievert is a physician by training and a self-taught ed tech entrepreneur who set out to improve healthcare education and according to any measure has wildly succeeded. In 2012, right after his graduation, he co-founded Amboss, a German med tech company with offices in New York, Berlin, and Cologne, impacting how medical knowledge is spread across the world. Their mission is to improve global health by empowering physicians worldwide to apply the best care possible. Today, more than 2 million healthcare professionals in over 170 countries rely on AMBOSS. Sievert studied medicine in Germany, Portugal, and Brazil. He studied at the University of Göttingen while on a prestigious German academic scholarship. He completed his clinical rotations in psychiatry and anesthesiology in Lisbon, Zurich, and Sao Paulo before earning his doctorate in experimental molecular biology. Sievert, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Pleasure to be here with you guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm really, really excited for this podcast episode. You know, when I told some of my medical student friends that we were interviewing the founder of Amboss, they were very, very excited and they sent in their own questions and and things like that. And so I know this is going to be an episode that people really, really engage with. But, you know, we're excited to explore sort of your entire story today from the beginning to present day. So to put things into perspective for our audience, Sievert, can you walk us through your story, sort of your upbringing, why you decided to go to medical school in the first place, and what led you to explore unconventional paths within the field? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, good question. Um, good first question, obviously, to to enter. Uh, it's, it's I, I think, always a question uh, how early you want to start with the things that you think shaped you. Um, but um, maybe uh, to, to go a bit deeper here... Um, I think one of the key forces that uh, drove me uh, to become what I am today is that uh, my parents divorced at a very young age. Uh, I was like around five or six. And I I think today that at the time um, that made me very ambitious uh, to um, yeah, to to somehow uh, become lovable, or uh, that at least was my concept of if I if I do great things, I'm lovable, and I, I I get the attention of my parents, and somehow they're still you know both in in my world, etc. Um, that led to me being quite a good student in school, basically in all subjects. Um, not particularly good in one or the other, but like over, like across the range, uh, good as probably is, is quite uh, yeah uh, common amongst medical students. Uh, um, and then I, I wasn't sure um, what I wanted to do, like up until I think the final year. Um, uh, but I, so I was really thinking about doing different things, uh, maybe. Uh, industrial design or uh, architecture or something in the science areas. Uh, But then what appealed me uh, about medicine was that I felt I wanted to do something that 
is always needed and uh, that is very close to like essential human needs. And um, yeah, so I, I kind of chose medicine uh, of, of these options and probably in hindsight, again, uh, to be lovable, you know, you want to have an impact and be, uh, uh, be respected by, by people. Um, then, then obviously studying medicine, you know how it is. I, I found it fascinating to understand how the body works. Uh, I did not like it so much uh, for the cramming aspects of it uh, and like all the, the things that uh, you just have to memorize and, and cannot understand or so. Um, and I felt a little bit that there, there, were, there was, at least at the time, uh, an creative, a creative element missing for me. It was like very, uh, let's say, uh, mono-directional, one skill, you know. Um, and then um, I was lucky to uh, have an internship one day uh, in, an, in a rural um, NGO in India. And... Um, that uh, basically, I, I stumbled into this. I wasn't even aware kind of like what the, the impact of that would be uh, or could be. Um, but it was so, um, su or such a revolution for me to, to see how medicine can also be applied and with how much more impact, like little measures. Uh, and we're talking here, you know, treating simple skin infections, uh, uh, or even just treating malnutrition or uh, small little wounds and things like this. Um, and and how, how these little measures could have a profound impact on individuals, combined then also with uh, providing education to these uh, um, rural populations. Um, and, and that made me think, I, you know, if I, once I finish uh, medical school, um, I don't want to apply my medical knowledge in like the Western hospitals of the world, <laughs> but I, I really want to be there where with that knowledge you can do a lot. And so I, I was going to pursue an MPH after um, med school, um, but then, yeah, we ambos <laughs> uh, happened basically uh, when preparing for the final exam, and I know we were uh, go deeper into this uh, so that that put me off a little bit of, of of that direct track for the mph maybe what a fantastic story sievert and a couple of reflections from my point first of all thanks for being very sort of vulnerable and frank with us uh, and sharing your story uh, you know most of my friends become doctors because their parents were doctors or, or something simple like that because that's just what they know that's the world they grew up in but you're different, you know, from the very, very beginning, you sort of mentioned why you were initially interested in becoming a good student and going into medicine. And that's exciting. And I think that's a thread that we're going to see throughout your career. The other thing I wanted to mention is sort of this notion of amplification of knowledge. You sort of mentioned that you had training in Germany and in India and a couple of other places that we'll talk about. And now you can take that knowledge and apply it within a Western context and have an impact on one patient individually. And that impact can be, you know, very deep. 
but you can also have breadth of impact, you know, through that knowledge, through something like Amboss. And that's a recurring theme that seems to come up with all of our guests. It's like when they decided whether or not to stick with traditional clinical medicine or go off the beaten path, it's to sort of trade off between depth versus breadth. And that's something I want to explore uh, as well. And you sort of started answering the next question, which I'm really, really excited to get into. And, and that's about the link between your interest in global health and AMBOSS and, and this concept of sort of amplifying knowledge through education, through technology and edtech company. Um, so after graduation, you, as you mentioned, co-founded AMBOSS, medtech company with offices, as I understand, in New York, Berlin and Cologne. And I'm sure many in our audience, as I mentioned, are big fans of the platform. And so I welcome them to write in and tell us how Amboss helped them during their medical school years. What was interesting to me after reading about your background is that you have studied medicine and volunteered in numerous countries. So there's Germany, there's Portugal, there's Brazil and India that you mentioned. And you had a focus on global health from the very, very beginning. Now, we've had many, many global health pioneers uh, on our show. We've been really lucky to have them, such as Dr. Claire Wagner, who's leading important initiatives at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation through policymaking, infrastructure building, and scientific initiatives. Then there's people like Dr. Jeffrey Levinson, who travels around the world operating on people to help cure blindness. But in reality, there's so many different ways to impact patients' lives. But like a true outside-the-box thinker, you chose a unique vehicle through which to impact global health, and that's educating physicians around the world. So I'm curious what made you realize that education was in fact a scalable and high-yield way to have an impact on global health, and how have you ensured that the teachings delivered through AMBOSS reach not just North American and European clinicians, but clinicians around the world? Yeah, very good uh, and thorough question. <laughs> uh, to be honest here again, like we did not fully understand uh, this potential impact on global health uh, when we started AMBOSS. Uh, for me, those were kind of two different things at the time. Um, and it was only later, uh, I think, when we started thinking about um, uh, the 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 English version that that I realized, hey, you know, like with an English version, you can go much, uh, yeah, much broader than with a German version, obviously, and and you could impact not only the U.S. but but a lot of other countries, and and that made me realize it could have the a global health impact. I think overall, you also ask, you know, what. What made it scalable, and uh, and and why do I think um, uh, the education angle um, has or can have an impact on on uh, the global health? I think for one, um, there's you know medical knowledge is let's say ninety percent the same throughout the world, right? Uh, and maybe you could even say more than this, but there are obviously there are differences in. Uh, application, uh, local differences, uh, um, you know, do you uh, give that uh, antibiotic and when and, and, and so on. And there are even differences between the U.S. and Germany. So we all have our own guidelines. But like, let's say on a, on a global scale, 90% is probably the same. Yeah? Uh, and we're all, it's, it's all based on the same knowledge. Yeah? The knowledge is accessible for everyone. Um, then the, the second uh, insight, I think, is medical knowledge is a continuum, right? So... Um, you start at day one with laying the foundations of uh, physics and and biochemistry, etc., uh, physiology, and so on. Then you learn uh, how the body works, how it 
what, what happens if it doesn't work anymore, and then you learn uh, what you can do about it, and then you specialize uh, basically um, uh, about what about that area, what you can do about it. So it it is a continuum from day one of med school up until retirement. Yeah, it's not you unlearn basically this, and then there's a, a totally different set of things. It all builds on top of each other. And then the third insight is we already know a lot today. Yeah? We already know so much uh, about the human body and, and all the options that we have. Um, but what we see, even in the Western countries, it's not applied. Yeah? There, it's, and this is not, this is not uh, going to be better. This, this gets even harder with all the current trends that we're seeing, you know, all the data uh, with uh, um, big data and then machine learning applied on, on top of big data, precision medicine, et cetera. Like all of these will only increase the amount of knowledge um, that is generated. And apparently already today, medical knowledge is doubling every 73 days. So this, the, the insight that uh, medical knowledge will uh, be more difficult uh, to handle um, with every day that we step forward yeah, um, is another trend that we have in mind. And so I think um, if we take these three things together yeah, um, for, for, uh, on, a, on a global scale, for us, this makes a lot of sense. They, you know, they, there needs to be a tool where medical knowledge is basically outsourced and helping the physicians uh, to apply that knowledge. That knowledge uh, can be applied to some extent throughout the world, yeah, and it will be applied basically on a lifelong basis because you need to stay up to date. So um, that's, I think, the same for every physician and even healthcare pro professional uh, to some extent throughout the world. Yeah? Now, how do we make sure this is not just limited to Western countries, right? As you say, you know, we're in the digital world, so like as long as they, the, the countries or the physicians or healthcare workers have access to internet uh, to some extent, yeah, uh, they can also access our knowledge uh, uh, database. And um, we, we've made sure also, I think, with some initiatives that you are aware of, that there is a global health initiative where we collaborate uh, with roughly 20 universities in sub-Saharan Africa, where we have a different uh, kind of model, uh, how they can make use of EMBOSS, um, that it's uh, fair for them. Uh, we have a humanitarian support initiative where we supported, for example, uh, the Syrian and Turkish uh, medical students and physicians uh, with the earthquake or uh, the Ukraine uh, when when the war started and it's still still going on. So, um, yeah, we're we're trying to be let's let's say respective of the local standards uh, that we find uh, in the world and and find a model that works for everyone. Yeah, no, that's all fantastic to hear. I think, you know, a couple of reflections from my side, you mentioned that global health perhaps wasn't, at least intentionally, wasn't a big focus at the very beginning. And that just sort of very beautifully shows how, I guess, volatile and unpredictable entrepreneurship can be, right? You start with a certain purpose, a certain product market fit, and you scale and you realize, hey, we need to pivot for whatever reason, or at least expand the breadth or the ambition or the scope of your company. And I know Alex and I have had to do that at Sky Therapeutics significantly. You know, initially we thought we were going to go down a particular path. And then we realized that we had to sort of tranche off our US versus our European strategy because of just different 
regulatory, legal, and reimbursement ecosystems. It's just something you always have to do. And so you expanding your breadth and your ambition and your scope at Amboss to link it more with global health is something that uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs can intuitively identify with. I think the other thing that you mentioned, Sievert, is this notion of a lot of knowledge already existing but not being currently applied. And, and I think that's very important. It, it makes me think of all of the data and the knowledge and the technology that we currently have, but don't use in the right way. And I think we're always trying to generate new knowledge and new technology. That's sort of the quote unquote sexy thing to do, but reorganizing current knowledge to help more people can be just as effective and sometimes more cost effective. In the U.S., someone mentioned, and I won't take credit for this, I forget who, but someone mentioned in the U.S., we always try to build new Ferraris rather than new roads. And you need to do both of those things in order to you know, have, a, have a huge impact on people's lives. So far, it's been an absolute fantastic discussion. Really, really enjoying it. I know we could talk for hours, but I'll hand it over to Alex to continue our discussion here. Perfect. Thank you, Shad. And uh, thank you, Sievers. Really, really enjoying the conversation so far. And definitely agree that, you know, digital can be a massive force for good. So it's amazing to hear about, you know, the collaborations that you have, Thiever, and the programs that you have to support students around the world. You know, as you know, I did my medical school back in Syria, and I actually remember using the osmosis videos back at that time when, you know, I was studying kind of the English curriculum because our curriculum was in Arabic and preparing for the board. So, so I'm really glad that Ambos is now available to Syrian and Ukrainian and medical students from a variety of countries. So circling back to one component that you've mentioned at the beginning, it's around the cramming and the need to memorize a large amount of information during medical school. So, you know, I have this feeling that we're part of the last generation that uh, will have a lot of textbooks and will, you know, seek medical knowledge through those textbooks. I feel at the end of medical school, I had textbooks that can fill two libraries just because of the, the amount of paper and books that you have to acquire uh, through the program. And so, you know, with digital innovations like AMBOSS, ease to which you can access medical information is massively changing. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you envision the future of interactive, up-to-date medical education and how can we prepare the upcoming workforce in healthcare for this transformation and change and knowledge acquisition? Yeah, um, also a very good question. <laughs> uh, I wish uh, your uh, prediction uh, comes true, uh, Alex, uh, that we will be the last generation. Unfortunately, uh, medical uh, school hasn't changed a lot in the past 100 years. Uh, so let's see. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, basically uh, doubling down here on on what I said before um, is the the exponential growth of medical knowledge, right? So, like with that in mind, um, uh, it doesn't make sense to stick to the model that students are fed facts and and they are expected to memorize these, and then uh, half of these facts are even outdated when they leave medical school. So, like, what are we what are we uh, teaching here? Um, and and basically not only for medical students, uh, but also for the physician later, we're basically reaching kind of like a cognitive boundary here, or we have even surpassed it already and we're trying to cope with it in the old-fashioned way. And um, I, I think that's a, a systemic or and or systematic problem. So 
cramming more facts won't help. Um, uh, we need a different answer to this. And I, I think um, it should go more into the direction of um, teaching students certain techniques. Uh, for example, how to navigate future floods of information instead of making them memorize uh, all of these facts, right? Uh, so how do I stay up to date as a physician um, over the course of my lifetime? Um, and, I, and I think we have uh, the chance uh, with these tools now to offload parts of this medical knowledge into technical tools, which doesn't mean that we're basically offloading our responsibility here, but we're offloading uh, parts of this cognitive function to some, uh, to, to, to like a, a little helper, so to say. Yeah? And, and I think that's maybe something that is unseen or unprecedented for physicians so far, right? Uh, and their like, medical knowledge is what differentiates me as a physician from the patient. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think once we are ready to accept um, these tools as necessary tools, just like the thermometer, right? We have been using tools for hundreds of years now, uh, and very naturally so. But also with a thermometer, when it came out, right, uh, maybe 200, 300 years ago, there was a cry out in the scientific community uh, about, no, the thermometer is not, uh, you know, displaying all... Uh, um, aspects of fever. Uh, so how can we trust this tool? And yes, it's not uh, it's not assessing all of these uh, aspects, but it allows uh, a standardized taking of the temperature, right? And so I think um, uh, we we have to uh, make use of these tools in the best way and accept them as kind of like natural extensions of our um, of our own abilities as a physician. And then once we do accept this, I think. Uh, the digitization in general uh, even allows us to focus more on the innate human abilities. Yeah, like what are why are we humans? What are we good in as humans, and what what will not be uh, so uh, or so quickly replaced by machines? And and I think you know one one of these core aspects is like the human interaction and and all what we think is uh, essentially the human interaction. And this comes down to empathy and the the listening and the the, the a good interaction with a patient and um and uh, so after all like digitization i think can help make medicine more human again <laughs> and uh and we can be a part of that um and then with that in mind you can also change the curriculum yeah uh, to something that is more focused on let's say um, laying the foundations of medical knowledge uh, um, more on soft skills, uh, um, on teaching empathy, on teaching listening, on teaching how to, uh, what we said earlier, um, navigating the future floods of information, etc. So, yeah, the focus or the shift could, uh, sorry, the, sh the, the focus could shift here quite a bit uh, um, to more or, or yeah, uh, other uh, key competencies, um, but but I think it's a chance. Uh, it's a chance both for physicians uh, as well as for patients. Yeah, I appreciate that, Sievert, and we'll get back to the curriculum point in my next question. But, you know, to follow up on some of the components that you've mentioned, you know, in addition to digital becoming a way 
to access complex and continuously changing medical information, you know, very easily and very quickly. How can we use, you know, technologies like AMBOTH to actually hyper-personalize, you know, that learning experience of the medical doctor, medical residents, and, and across the continuum of the journey, right? So currently we have continuous medical education programs, but it's, you know, it's a one-size-fits-all programs that are not truly effective. And so how can we use technologies like AMBOS to actually personalize the acquisition of knowledge to each individual and to the gaps of each individual? Yeah, I think it's basically, as you say, right? I mean, the, the, the power in digital tools lays exactly in that uh, point in the hyper-personalization. And um, what we already do today, but which, can, which will only be stronger in the future, is exactly this, is like understand where someone coming from, what are their strengths and weaknesses, weaknesses and, uh, and on a very granular basis define basically their knowledge profile and create learning out, uh, opportunities out of that. Now, that is something that in a lecture with uh, 200 fellow students, you won't receive from a lecturer, obviously, and you won't receive from a book, right? So this guided component here, I think, will only be stronger over time and especially also with applying more and more machine learning, uh, like real life machine learning into, into the mix, yeah, then um, you, you can uh, basically create a very, very um, granular and uh, hyper-personalized uh, steps in the learning journey, not only for the student, but also for the physician. And, uh, physician. and uh, I, I think the entry points are just different. Yeah. The, so for the student, it might be more based on, uh, you know, the, the step questions, whereas for the physician, it's the, um, the search queries that they enter. And uh, like over time, you build knowledge on like basically the, the specific profile, but also what profiles of a certain background share and what would be helpful for them over time as they uh, progress um, basically in, in, their, in their journey as a healthcare professional. So that to me is something that, uh, that is so powerful that, I mean, it sounds trivial, as you said, like how can we even personalize it more and more and uh, hyper-personalize it? I think that's the key, you know, like uh, hyper-personalization um, will only uh, will be so strong and uh, and uh, will only get stronger uh, with every day and every data point. Absolutely, no, I completely agree, Sievert, and I think there's you know massive potential, as you've mentioned, for you know to use AI and, and generative AI technologies to kind of help physicians and, and medical students personalize that knowledge and, and stay up to date because, I mean, the amount medical information is changing now is massive and it's changing very, very quickly. And so, you know, as, as medical doctors and medical students, we need ways to be able to keep up to date with all of those changes. You know, circling back to the curriculum change, kind of part of, of the discussion, during our previous conversations, uh, one of our guests uh, highlighted how the current medical education system can stifle creativity to some extent. And it's understandable, you know, given the need for risk aversion in uh, certain medical practices. But, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on how can we improve the current medical education system to unlock and empower more creativity 
among doctors while maintaining the necessary risk of uh, the necessary kind of level of risk aversion. Yeah, um, I totally agree to that statement. I, I think it's very true uh, that there is, like in in clinical practical medicine, there also from my experience, uh, there seems to be no inherent space for creativity. Yeah, there, it's it's very protocol heavy. Um, and ideally, it doesn't make a difference if the physician is you or me uh, standing there treating the patient, right? It should be the same kind of uh, quality of treatment, etc. So um, this is not the place for creativity. <laughs> and I think uh, all of our um, uh, education and, and also the working is, uh, is like that. It's, it's all about this. But, but I do think on the other side... Um, there, there are so many problems in, in healthcare um, that we need and want to fix uh, that this needs a lot of, uh, I think, entrepreneurs, uh, not only entrepreneurs, but also entrepreneurs to, or, or at least people who have that entrepreneurial mindset and want to change something uh, to the better. And, and I think in order uh, to get to that place, we, um, we should demonstrate that these different paths exist and that uh, that you can for example study medicine but all but but not work clinically you know like and that in my in my uh, med school wasn't a thing like we were not basically studying medical science so to say to then be applied to a variety of different fields but we were studying medicine actually uh, to to become a physician yeah and and I think this does not only begin in, in med school. I, I, I think even in, in high school or elementary school, you know, it's, it's already there. We're uh, graded on our performance on clear and given goals by, by our teachers. And basically, it comes down to uh, being as con uh, or, or um, yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> Basically, it comes down to uh, conformity. Yeah. So, like, uh, the more conform you are, uh, the 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 better you perform, and 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 so on. So, and and that's um, I think that's that's that can be a trap. It works uh, for for the 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 safety oriented uh, people and and societies. And overall, I think for the majority of society, probably this works. But um, we shouldn't always be aiming for these safe options. Yeah, like the the true innovations do not come from these uh, safe areas uh, out of which you can act, and 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 so I think we should be encouraging uh, to take different approaches to career building and to um, even you know going through school and and also I mean this is not this is not only you know, like how the curriculum looks like. This is how the teachers talk to you and, uh, and uh, how you talk to your children and, and what society sees as the role models. Yeah? And, and so I think this is, in, in the end, it's a societal question uh, where the mindset should shift a little bit and, um, and uh, we should change to, uh, yeah, an approach where, Hey, you know, taking these risks in in certain areas is actually super helpful. Although we might not, we might not win, we might fail, 
um, but it's it's taking worth these shots, and uh, and I'm not sure we are there uh, yet. And um, yeah, Seaver, this is very interesting. I completely agree. I think there is a large level of stigma associated with you know going for a non-clinical path as a medical student. And I think addressing that is so important. And, you know, one of the factors that I think about is, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, as a medical doctor, your ability to kind of improve the lives of individuals was mostly driven by clinical practice. But today, because there's so many different verticals and factors that affect healthcare, as someone who has that medical knowledge, you can actually improve the lives of of millions of people in a variety of ways, right? You know, there's a proliferation of a healthcare innovation ecosystem, right? So as someone who has that medical knowledge, you can go and start a company like Amboss, for example, and aim to solve some of the problems of healthcare. You can also go to the healthcare investing side or healthcare financing side or healthcare consulting. So there is proliferation of a variety of verticals that have a very deep influence on healthcare delivery today, but we don't have enough representation of the medical doctors who actually have very valuable clinical skills and firsthand, you know, patient management skills in those particular verticals and as decision makers on the table. And so I completely agree there. My follow-up question is, if you were to change something in the structure of medical school, what would you do to kind of address this stigma or to help medical students understand that these different paths are available? And when you were at, at that fork in the road, when you had to decide between going clinical or going for entrepreneurship, what was your biggest concern and who helped you overcome that concern? This is a standard question that we're trying to include in every kind of podcast recording because it's very common for you know medical doctors who eventually decided not to do clinical to go through some concerns around that decision. So I'm very curious to know what was your concern and who or what helped you overcome that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so answering your first question, maybe I, I think, you know, not putting on the blinders to uh, all these options that are out there, which definitely happened in my uh, <laughs> time uh, in med school um, and and from a university uh, side, not not for, even from my side. Like showing the options that are out there, I think will already um, help uh, students to, to to reflect a bit more. And and the earlier the better, right? Like this can be in med school, but this could also be in high school. This can, the, like to see just the variety of options, I think is very helpful. Um, and and then showcasing, let's say, uh, certain role model cases or whatever, or getting a feeling for what it means to work in, in the different uh, fields is helpful. Um, uh, and ultimately, I think, yeah, or maybe to put it, put it this, this way, I think, Allowing for some freedom within your time in med school to understand that better, to understand what it means, you know, to be a clinically practicing physician, but also uh, what it could like to be, as you said, a healthcare investor or a researcher on uh, like in uh, some kind of uh, uh, molecular biology field or 
um, or uh, a um, an entrepreneur. Yeah, um, I think that's uh, that's allowing for that kind of freedom with basically some time. I think is very helpful and. Uh, uh, can be different, I think, across uh, geographies that some uh, uh, countries or or universities even allow for that already. But uh, that was definitely not the case in my time. Now, uh, the second question um, that you asked uh, on um, what was it that uh, that the, the or the, what were the biggest concerns when when we took the decision to do this? Um, I think for us it was. Uh, or specifically for me, it was really at the time the biggest concern that I would leave this path uh, of uh, of the clini clinically practicing physician. Yeah, I, I mean, I had this idea of doing the MPH, uh, but I still thought uh, I, I would somehow practice, but maybe somewhere else, and maybe yes, on a maybe at some point on a higher level. Yeah, uh, but I thought about. Uh, doctors without borders and, and going abroad and humanitarian crisis regions, etc. Um, that was uh, very appealing to me. And, and so, like, just leaving this path um, that I had uh, thought of for quite some time and was working towards for a couple of years already um, was really, uh, uh, yeah, uh, was, was probably my biggest concern. And so what, what helped... Me and uh, and I think us as the group, uh, the three of us that that we started with this, um, was that we time boxed it and we said, hey, you know, we're young. We're like we were twenty seven or so, twenty six at the time. Um, I mean, you guys are way younger when you graduate from med school. So this is Germany, <laughs> taking some time, but. Um, um, we said, you know, we're still young. We have no obligations. We can basically continue to live like a student, uh, and and so we can we we can give this maybe two years and see uh, where uh, this will be in two years. And that was super helpful for us because it was a relief. It was not uh, this um, notion of okay, so this will change the rest of my life, and I have to make this decision now. And how am I going to make this decision? Do I really want to do this for the rest of my life, etc.? But if you time box such a decision on um, on a on a certain time horizon that seems okay to be invested, I think that makes things a lot easier. And we knew we could always return basically to the path from before. Um, so that was uh, yeah, very very helpful for us. And then. Obviously, as the story goes, <laughs> we haven't returned really <laughs> afterwards, uh, but uh, continued now for uh, 12 years uh, um, overall. And so uh, it was uh, probably this uh, lifetime decision uh, at the time, uh, but it, we, we could uh, uh, take that decision more easily. Thank you, Sievert. I love the journey and the way you, you described it. That's very helpful. And so to finish us off, you know, how can our audience learn more about what you do and, and follow the impact and project that you're engaged in? Um, yeah, I mean, overall, as I'm, we are rather, um, we're not appearing much, I think, on social media, et cetera. I mean, of course, we have our accounts and so on, but um, we're we're very heads down focused on our product, and uh, so we don't go out so much. Um, yes, you find me uh, on some podcast interviews like this one uh, here every now and then, um, and on uh, LinkedIn. Um, 
uh, you can obviously follow Amboss, follow me, follow uh, other people in the in the company. Um, um, but yeah, other than that, uh, you can always reach out and we can talk and uh, maybe uh, um, we can go deeper on questions uh, that you have and uh, maybe your own entrepreneur journey or so. Um, yeah, maybe that's helpful. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Sievert. I really appreciate that. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation today. So uh, thank you for your time and for joining us as a guest. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Chad, that was a great conversation with Sievert. I really enjoyed it. During the conversation, we touched on this idea that at decision inflection points, there are paths that are expected based on historical experience of people at that decision point. So in Sievert's experience of medical school, uh, he mentioned that the paths that were expected at graduation is were mainly around going for residency and different residency options. And paths did not exist for entrepreneurship. And so going against the grain is, is hard and scary. And, and Sievert mentioned that the decision to not practice medicine was his biggest concern. And so my takeaway is around the psychological trick that he used of time boxing uh, his decision and the decision of uh, his founding team, which were his, his fellow MD classmates. So they've time boxed their decision to try entrepreneurship for one to two years. And if it doesn't work, to go back into clinical medicine. And I like the psychological trick because it shifts the perspective from a perspective of making a deterministic decision that would shape the rest of your career, meaning deciding whether to practice medicine or not, which could be really, really scary as a decision, to a decision that recognizes that you can test something that you're passionate about for considering the amount of time. And then if it doesn't work, you can go back into the clinical path. And in fact, if that test failed, meaning, for example, for them, if, if the startup idea failed and he went back to medicine, the experience that he had developed and, and, and nurtured uh, through entrepreneurship would have probably made him a better clinician because he has gained a differentiated and unique skill set and expertise. That'd be my main takeaway. And over to you. Thanks, Alex. Completely agree with that takeaway. Really had a good time with Sievert on this particular podcast. It was one of my favorites. My main takeaway is that it's really important to find a cost-effective way to disseminate current knowledge and technology so that we can have an impact on the world. You know, knowledge, for example, is not being used appropriately because it's not disseminating from the source to the right people at the right time, often due to a lack of awareness or access issues. There's also a societal value problem here. You know, we tend to obsess over new things, new technology, new knowledge, new drugs. And while those are important, it's also important and just as important to use existing resources in new and unique ways to enhance impact. You know, let me share a few examples here. You know, I always felt it was a shame that so much effort, time, and money is spent on every single peer-reviewed research project out there that you can find online on some database. But the overwhelming majority of these papers have perhaps a few dozen or less people reading them. And what percentage of those people really read it the whole way through and use it constructively for further knowledge generation or clinical utility? And that's why tools like, you know, what Watson was doing for oncology and what UpToDate does for providers are great. You know, they get the right knowledge, which already exists and which we're challenging to discover, it gets it to the right people at the right time. 
Another example is this obsession with creating new drugs. This is a healthy obsession, literally and figuratively, but as we exhaust the low-hanging fruits and as the cost of R&D goes up, the cost to bring a novel drug to the market is now in the order of billions of dollars. Some individuals like David Fagenbaum, who we've actually had on the podcast, who was one of our early guests, they're trying to use existing drugs some of which may be lounging in a pharma back office or back shelf somewhere and trying to repurpose them for different diseases. And that's specifically why I like what Sievert is doing. You know, in a world that's obsessed with building new Ferraris, he's building more roads so that existing cars can travel where they need to get to better. But that was sort of my takeaway from this uh, episode. I hope it's uh, an episode that our audience enjoyed. I certainly enjoyed hosting it. But for our audience, remember to follow us on social media, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at POTBP Podcast, and to catch our latest podcast on your favorite podcast platform. To get in touch with us, uh, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. You know, we volunteer our time and money to make this content freely available. If you enjoy our content and find it helpful, you can support us by buying us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash P-O-T-B-P-P. Thank you and join us next week.